Welcome to another edition of Talk Hockey Radio. I'm joined by Fraser and Simon. Hello, the boys. Hey, Excellent. And we've got a bit of a treat for you as well. Um, we have Keely Dunn um, from FH Umpires talking about uh, suggested, um, you know, rule changes and what we think, uh, you know, uh, we we should we should introduce or we could introduce. And uh, it was quite an interesting one. So uh, we've got that coming up uh, later on in the show. So watch out and listen out for that one. Uh, but before that, Fraser, what have we got to talk about this time around? OK, so tonight we've got a few things to cover. To start off with, we're going to talk about an unfortunate theft that's happened in the hockey family. We're going to cover off the Hockey Family Industry Awards for this year. We're going to talk about the Olympics and how we think that's going to play out. We're going to cover players that we think people should be watching. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the selection. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, I need to breathe though, Taff. Jeez. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Following that, we're also going to talk about Belgium's new performance centre. Kudron stepping down from his position as Belgian chairman and an English club has disbanded after a hundred years. Yeah, I read that one. Um, so are we are we going to go just go down the list then, as we normally do? Because I, I, you know what, I'd like you to sort of like say, let's talk about this, you know, and then you know, mix it up a bit, a little bit. I don't know. Um, but we usually just run down the list that you just uh, mentioned. So, um, I guess that's what we're doing again. Is that right, Fraser? That's what we're going to do again, Taff. You've got no sense of like adventure, have you? Anyway, uh, so McFerrin medal stolen. Um, I saw a little post on this. I mean, you mentioned this, uh, Fraser, so you obviously saw this a little bit more than I did. No, a little bit more. Yeah, so there was a break-in at her property. A lot of her personal effects were stolen, uh, electronic equipment, I think some of her mum's jewellery that she'd passed down and her World Cup silver medal were all taken. Um, There was quite a strong response from the hockey family of people sharing this, getting information around trying to get any information back to her that they could um as far as i'm aware it's with the police and it's being handled i've not seen any updates at the time of recording mm. but it, it it is just kind of heartbreaking they yeah. had that amazing run through the the world cup to yeah. reach the final and then this uh, this medal that she's got the reminder of that is taken from her yeah it's uh it's it's i don't i don't know whether i don't think she was targeted as such being you know like an uh you know a, a hockey player or whatever or or winner or silver medal winner or, or or something i think it's probably just one of those unfortunate things where they've they've targeted her house or flat or whatever it was um and i don't i don't understand why would you take why would why would you take a medal i mean electronic equipment i can understand you know they could probably sell it on and, and things like that but a medal Really, jewelry? Yeah, you could probably sell that on as well. But but uh, but a, a tournament medal? What what use is that to anyone? Really, don't understand that. So it, if you've got it, it and you've been listening to this, give it back. <laughs> it's one of the things. It's probably whoever broke in saw it. I imagine it's in some nice display case. Yeah. They they won't know what it's for. They'll have just taken it. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably um, right. I really hope if it's not recovered that the FIH can recreate it for her. Yeah. That would that be that would be immense, wouldn't it? Really, that would be that be really good if they can actually do that. Oh, or if if we've got a thief that's got a bit of a conscience <laughs> and does return the medal, you know, even if it's anonymous, send it to whatever and and get it get it back to her. Ty. Yeah, I I can understand. It's obviously incredibly sad for her, um, and it has no tangible value other than to the person who it was awarded to. Um, I guess hopefully she can go and get another medal this summer. 
um, yeah. as sort of way of, of making up for it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I suspect she'll carry it around with her all the time now if, if, if she does get a medal. Uh, which obviously we, you know, best of luck to her with with regards to that. Okay, well, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to keep our um, ears to the ground kind of thing and and see what happens with this outcome and you know report back to the to the listeners if they don't already know <laughs> by the time we record again. It's that time of year again, boys. The THF uh, awards are coming out next month, so listen out for them. We we came up with this a few a few years ago, and it's it's. It looks quite popular and and stuff, and you know people have commented and, and things like that. Uh, anyway, next one, the Olympics, and who we think uh, are the teams to look out for. Um, I'll come to you, Fraser, first because I, I don't like Simon anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure why I don't like him. I just thought about it. Go. I heard it was from uh, some anonymous comments that he's been posting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I mean, I think it goes without say that you've always got to watch out for the Dutch yeah. in the women's game, especially, but I think at the minute their men's side looked especially strong recently, Yeah, possibly just starting to find form after all of the lockdowns and the chaos that we had in the past 12 months, finding form at exactly the right time going into the Olympics, the big dance, as some call it. Okay. Well, um, who else do you think besides the Dutch then? <laughs> On the women, surely the Germans are fairly high up there. Okay. Why? Why? Yeah. Um, because they were the only ones who really ran it close with the Dutch at the Euros. And right. obviously everyone was probably holding back some of their uh, particularly penalty corner routines um, and probably some attacking patterns. But they still went for it to try and win. And um, yeah, they made it very difficult for them. Um, otherwise, in women, obviously, great to see the Irish there. Um, looking forward to seeing how they get on. And the Spanish could be an interesting one. Uh, and then, of course, Australia and New Zealand, it's very difficult to predict because they basically haven't played against anybody until today. On the day of recording, they had their Pro League matches, mm. uh, their first ones in ages. So uh, difficult to know what to expect. So what do you think? That's... OK, right. What your thoughts on the top three then, possibly, for the men's then? Oh, for men? Mm-hmm. I'd love to see Belgium win it. Uh, it's difficult. You, my instinct would be to put Australia in number two or number three, but mm. if you haven't seen them play for so long, it's really difficult to predict. Um, yeah. There's not been much hockey going on. That's basically what what we what we can't um, you know sort of like um, pin it on sort of thing. We've obviously we've seen the the Euros and stuff, and we know how some of the yeah. teams in, in Europe have been playing, but not internationally, like you know Argentina and and New Zealand and <clears throat> and, and people like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd expect Germany will be in there as well. So nice to see them get silver, maybe. Yeah. And then bronze. Uh, could dare to dream that maybe the GB men might possibly go there. Mm. Well, they just they just lost out in the Euros, uh, didn't they? Uh, with regards to um, coming, was it? No, they didn't. Yeah, they came fourth. They lost yeah, to Belgium fourth, uh, in a bronze medal match. Yeah. So. Which was a shame, though, because they were playing all right. Um, but. It's obviously as England, not GB. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but I mean, you can, they're going to have obviously a little bit more extra players uh, in there uh, for the GB squad. Yeah, they'll look really good once they've got Alan Forsyth from the team, won't they? <laughs> well, <laughs> shots fired? Yeah, very much so. Well, I, I'd like to know. Over the bow. It would be good for, the, I'm sure, like Danny Carey obviously is an extremely talented coach. And I'll have his reasons. I think it probably would have been a good idea to let people know what those reasons were if Forsyth consented to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it would just clear up any of these accusations about it being because he's Scottish. 
um, or what the Hockey World News was reporting about it being uh, like a sort of a grudge thing. Um, and Danny Carey, some people say he's got his favourites, but on the other hand, he dropped Helen Richardson-Walsh uh, just before the World Cup in 2014. And I think most people would probably have listed her as one of his favourites. Um, so he, he'll do what he thinks right. I'm sure he's got a reason for it. It's just, it'd be good to know what it was. Yeah, maybe, maybe we might find out. Who knows? You might, you might come out with it afterwards and maybe... Maybe Alan might say something. Yeah, uh, I, I would expect it would come out afterwards, not before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so sort of, obviously there is every possibility of if if whatever you know someone gets injured, someone gets ill, whatever. Yeah, he may get drafted in anyway, so you yeah. never know. Well, you know, you, I'm 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 actually hoping that kind of happens, but not hoping that kind of happens. You know what I mean? I don't want someone to lose their position so that um you know Forsyth can come in and and whatever. But then I'm thinking. You know, if if something like that does happen and Forsyth comes in and then shows us how good he really is, and 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 shows well the powers that be maybe thinking saying, well, you should have picked me. Look at what I can do, kind of thing. Uh, you know, he's a class player, but like you said, you know, uh, Danny Kerry's probably uh, got his reasons on why he wasn't picked for the first sixteen or whatever it is uh, that they uh, that they they select accredited players and stuff and not being in reserves or whatever. Um, the women then, top three. I mean, I know you went through it a little bit before, but to go on top three for the women. I think it was shot no one that we might think possibly the Dutch are favourites. <laughs> and then, yeah, Germany, I think, could probably go for second. Yeah. Third's an interesting one. I'd really like to see Spain get it. Um, again, it's very difficult to know what to expect from Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, Japan could be outsiders as well. They could be a surprise one. Um do you not think Ireland? Do you not think Ireland probably pip it? Maybe. I don't know. I think if it. Bear in mind also they they they've lost. I think is it Zoe Wilson to injury a while ago. He's quite an important player. Okay. Um, I think it'd be very tough to do that. Also, also it's their first ever one. Yeah. Um, uh, Argentina maybe. They're obviously not what they used to be. No. Um, I see Baron Nuevo is still back in the in the in the squad as well. Gun. Class, class player, but you know. Is it the fourth? Is it the fourth Olympics now? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Um, She's quite okay, good. So, at, sorry, what's that? She's quite good at hockey. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, I was a bit surprised when she got um, sort of like um, taken off the, uh, you know, centralized program years ago. This was, wasn't it? Um, even back then, she was really good. And then they had a, a, um, a coach change, I think, and then she was back into the squad again. Um, but yeah, she she is very much uh, a, a really very good class player, isn't she? So you know, good luck to her with regards to that one. Um, Fraser, do you do you agree with uh, Simon on those uh, selections for the three men and three ladies? No. No. Okay, go on then. What's your three men? So for the men's side of things, I think looking at recent form, you've got to put some weight behind the Netherlands. Yeah. I think Australia, based on their result today, seem to be in good form. And Australia is one of the few nations I think have the the ability to win ugly. So I think they are quite happy to let the opposition play pretty hockey and almost bully their way through to get the result. Mm-hmm. And then I think the Germans. Oh, okay. So not even the Belgians. I I just didn't think they looked as sharp in the recent Euros. And I know as Simon said, and we've discussed before, that teams will be holding certain elements back. Yeah. But I still think they would have looked sharp on the ball, even yeah. if the results weren't going their way, because they were they're holding back certain attacking plays uh, or penalty corner routines, as Simon's mentioned. Mm. But I, I just thought a lot of them looked 
very loose in possession, which they they didn't last time they played in the the World Cup. Yeah. Okay. Who knows? Maybe they were really selling it, but that that was just my takeaway from watching them in the Euros. What do you think, uh, yeah. Jimmy? You're going to end up in? Do you reckon they're going to be top four then, top five maybe? I don't know. Yeah, so, I think I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd put them probably in fourth. Okay. So you think they'll just lose out on the on a medal? Yeah. Wow. Okay. But they are, they they have been playing quite well. We they, they they have they've been playing very well. Yeah, um, um, and it's one of the things that just comes down to whether or not they can put their chances away. Yeah, firmly they had like a really prolific goal scoring forward or two in the squad. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and then women's side of things, I don't know. I I can see Argentina getting in the the top three again. Probably it's going to be the Netherlands for gold. Yeah, I think any other result at this point is going to be an upset. Mm. because they have been so dominant for so long. Mm. I mean, I think it's something that I've talked about away from, from this, but I mean, the the loss of the Rio gold is like the, the only major tournament they've lost in the last 10 years. Yeah. Going back, it, it, it is, kind of, as I say, it, it would be an upset at this point. Okay. And then for third, I, as Simon said, I think Spain are the kind of ones to watch. Yeah. They looked really fierce in the Euros, really competitive. And yeah, everyone likes a, an underdog story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What do you think uh, Great Britain and uh, Ireland are going to come then in that one? Do you reckon fourth and, and, and fifth? Or not? Men. Sorry? For the, for the women, for the women. Oh, OK, sorry. I was going to say, it's Ireland, aren't it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I, I think fifth for, for GB. Is, is where I see GB finishing up. OK, and Ireland? Hopefully sixth. All right. I think I'll probably go with that because they, I mean, if GB played as well as we think they can play, but they have actually obviously lost a few people through injury and retirements and stuff like that as well now. Um, if I if they play as well as I think they can play, then they'll be in the top four possibly. Possibly. Um, with Ireland, I think again, you know, if they play like they did in the World Cup, I mean, they could do it. They could. They could probably be in the medals or whatever, or just outside the medals. But they'll they'll probably give uh, GB a run for their money, you know, if they do play them uh, or whatever. Um, I, I've not actually seen the schedule. I should have actually put it up there. But um, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting because no one actually knows how these teams are going to play this year because we've not had that much hockey going on in the world over the last eighteen months or whatever. Um, so it's quite difficult, really, isn't it? I think I know we we've seen the Euros and. People have, you know, people have seen how the European teams are going to play, but with regards to internationally, there's not been much hockey going on. So we don't know how well they've coped with COVID lockdowns and and I think not playing or whatever. It's not just the the lack of international games either. It's the lack of international tournaments. Yeah. Because like we saw at the Euros, certain teams started very strong but dropped off just because they've not had that consistent competitive level of hockey. Yeah. Which is something I think me and Simon talked about in our Euro review episode. Yeah. The teams that really kind of shone were the Netherlands, Germany and Belgium, which were the three nations that completed their season. Yeah. And I think you could see in a lot of the other countries that their performance peaked very early and dropped off. Yeah. And I think that's something that they're all going to have to watch out for going into the Olympics. Yeah, for sure. On that note as well, then, uh, with regards to players, um, players to watch out for. Um, who do you think? I mean, 
Come on, I'll come to you, Simon, first this time round because I've, I've, I've li- I like you again now. <laughs> um, well, I, mean, I think a lot of them have come up when we did the Euros uh, review, but Anna O'Flanagan from Ireland uh, looks very creative. Um, you could just randomly pick any name from a Dutch team for the women. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously, Anna Toman uh, as the one of our better players from GB. Um, I think it's interesting with the Dutch selection. Obviously, they dropped uh, Anna Vanadal, um and they're taking uh, Koenig, which I agree with. Um, <clears throat> but it's 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 a big a big thing that they've done that because vanadal has been kind of the number one for a while, and and slowly Koenig's been creeping in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's she's an exceptional goalkeeper. Um, and then on the men, hoping. That the uh, the Belgians can turn it on. So obviously Victor Wenye, uh, Arte van Doren, um, uh, with the Germans you got Ruhr, you got uh, Fuchs. Yeah, uh, and then for the GB men, obviously Ollie Payne again. Uh, most of this was covered in the Euros episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and we said it's, it's difficult because we've not seen anything really from Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, Siegfried the uh, the the coach of the Japanese men has been very much talking up their chances and they're genuinely aiming for a medal. Um, that's that's his aspirations for the squad. Uh, well, they're aiming for gold. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they get on because um, they're not bad at all. Um, but again, they've, they've basically not been able to play much. They've, I think they've had one or two games. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's it from me. <laughs> Fraser? Yeah, Simon says it's kind of hard to to pick out players from outside of Europe with the lack of kind of anything to really go by. Um, I think, as Simon said, Ruhr for Germany is kind of must-watch hockey because he's so involved in every attack. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of Australians who have historically been very good, um, who you know we you would assume have kept form, but we. We've not really got anything to base it on other than a couple of fun, friendly games that have been played. Mm. Cool. Well, I, mean, <clears throat> I, I I can't really say much on what you guys have said. Um, I'm just going to echo what, what you, you've said. We've not seen much hockey from international outside Europe, obviously. Um, but who knows how, I, I don't know, who knows how they've actually coped with not playing enough hockey and just training and, and playing against, you know, their other you know, squad members or whatever. Um, but it'll be interesting. I think this is going to be a very interesting um, Olympics, not just solely for the fact that it's a year late, um, but also for the fact that each and every sport virtually has not had a full year of sport anyway. So um, it's going to be one of the, it's it's going to be one of those where I think it's going to be the team that wants it more, and it's going to be probably fit enough as well to to do it so well fingers crossed let's have a look at um what happens at the olympics anyway um so the next one was the belgian performance center you know and when i h- heard about this and read about it i was thinking they don't have a performance center and they're that good now think about <laughs> think about them having this performance center now and what it's going to do for their hockey thoughts on that one boys i think you're right i think we need to send someone over there to sabotage it <laughs> Well, well, you know, Simon's basically there sometimes, you know, now and again. Um, it's been a while. Apparently, you know, you know, working. 
Well, we could probably send him as a as our saboteur. Yeah, they they normally have historically they've had like kind of little camps uh, in the Flemish and the French speaking regions, um, and it, the players mix up a little bit as to who goes where. So they've not strictly speaking had an official base. Uh, the women were using a place called Adeps, which had two pitches and quite a bit of sort of running facilities and and, and gym stuff. Um, but it was pretty run down and old school. And the men were using B Sport, which was quite nice, uh, but only one pitch and a little bit difficult to get to in terms of traffic based on where it is. Whereas uh, to get to their new base, which is where the Euros were hosted in 2019, it's quite easy to get to off the motorway. Um, it's not too hard to get to using public transport either. Um, the actual facilities themselves are insane. Um, <laughs> Like the pictures and the videos that have been stuck up, it's so well thought out. So the changing rooms, for example, have loads of quotes and and iconic imagery of the history of the national teams. Each player has a designated sort of section of the of the changing room where it's got their name, a, a sort of a, a, sh- a picture of their shirt, and then they've got the upstairs area, which is kind of like a players' bar. Uh, with a view of the pitches, which is nice. And then the training facilities like the gym and so on, are, again, amazing. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, obviously we've got Bisham Abbey, and this will be interesting to sort of see how it impacts them. Um, Bisham has very good sports facilities, and they've got the benefit of having such a wide variety of, of technical coaches in, in different areas available to support them there. Mm. But based on what I've seen, the Belgian one looks slightly above uh Bisham Abbey in terms of facilities and, and provision for the athletes. Like, like I was saying, you know, they're, they're this good without that. And what's going to happen? It's just going to elevate their their hockey even more, I, I reckon. Thoughts on that, Fraser? Yeah. I mean, I, you would assume that having a designated performance centre with all your facilities being of highest quality will see an uptake in their performance. What I found really interesting is the idea that the top floor is going to be just for players. Does that mean the coaching staff isn't allowed up there? All of the administrative people, I'd assume, aren't allowed up there as kind of the point of it being players only, but just how players only is it? Is it a place that they can escape the coaches and don't have to (laughs) have those awkward conversations of, well, I don't think you were putting the effort in today. They can just run up to the top floor and be like, nope, not allowed, bye. (laughs) That's quite interesting. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think players' lounge is probably going to be, you know, one of these exclusive areas where they're going to have these, you know, head honchos going up there, mingling with the players, and the coaches are obviously up there as well. Um, You can only get in if you wear your international cap, I've heard. (laughs) No, completely made that up. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't got accreditation, you're not coming in. But... (laughs) But I think I think it's you know it'd be interesting if it's just players. I don't think it's going to be, but you know um, that'd be that'd be great, wouldn't it? I think players would love that sort of thing happening. That I'm just going to go up to the bar, have a have a relax or whatever, maybe maybe have a, a drink after the tournament's finished. Obviously, um, <laughs> yeah, it's only um, non-alcoholic. Well, maybe beverages are you know, available up there. Yeah, it all depends, doesn't it? No uh, coaching staff right. allowed to go and rein them in. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, they were all given duvels. Uh, when they opened it, they were what they? Yeah, yeah, it's it's like their official beer sponsor, I think. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So yeah, Taff, who's our official beer sponsor? <laughs> um, so I mean, you know, it, like I said, it's gonna. I, I reckon it's just gonna elevate their uh, their performance and and hockey 
even more than it is now. So they'll probably give people like the Netherlands a run for their money uh, in the coming uh, years or whatever. But I was quite shocked that I didn't have a, a performance centre. But, I mean, I don't even know if other countries have performance centres as such. And if they did, whether they, that would actually improve their improve their uh, hockey. I think it's done wonders for us, really. I think uh, in, uh, in terms of GB in England, having Bisham Abbey where we didn't have it properly as a as a centralised uh, performance centre uh, up until a good obviously a good few years ago when we started raising up our, our hockey anyway so it, it has improved us hasn't it really so I'm presuming it's going to probably do the same for the Belgians although they're already quite good <laughs> at the moment what do you think about uh, Coudron stepping down as uh, Belgium uh, chairman we, we were talking about this off air uh, it was it was going to happen is that right yeah, so he, he had announced some time ago that he was ending his, his time, uh, I think he'd, something like 16 years, I think he'd been in charge. Wow. Um, something like that, I'm sure. Um, it's a long time anyway that he was in charge. And I think, was it 2007 or six? they had like 8,000 players in Belgium, and it's now 50,000. And the men are the best team in the world, and the women are climbing up the rank and, yeah. and contending for medals again. So, I'm, you know, I'm, in terms of growing the game, he's done that. In terms of success, he's done that. They're also producing some of the best umpires in the world, so he's done that. He, he Obviously, he should have been the FIH president, and it's a tragedy for the sport that he's not. But hopefully his time will come again. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope he, I hope he uh, sort of like goes for it again next, next time around. I really do, because... It was close this time. It was very close this time. And I hope, like I said, I hope it goes for it again next next time in three years' time now or whatever, four years' time. Yeah, I mean, the risk to me is that he might end up elsewhere and that the sport loses him. So, for example, I can't imagine he's going to be struggling for offers. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, it, it's quite likely that the Belgian Olympic Association will want, want to try and work with him. Um, and other national governing bodies will have seen the work he's done and, and, want, and want him. Well... To be to be fair, if he if he becomes like uh, part of the uh, Olympic organization, whatever, why can't he be uh, the FIH one? Because like you know, Batra has done it, hasn't he? Really? <laughs> I'm not sure he should be using Batra as the measure. No, of but I, no, no. But you know, you, do you know what I mean? I mean, he, he he's basically cut his fingers in a lot of pies. Uh, I don't understand why maybe uh, Kudron couldn't do that as, as well. But I, I think he's got more more ethics and, and stuff like that then <laughs> and I don't think he would do that actually. Um but yeah fingers crossed. I mean I hope he does come back and, and gives gives another shot at uh, becoming FIH president because I think he's he for what he's done at Belgium um and and the sport there and, and our sport there, if he can just mirror that at the FIH, I mean wow, that would honestly be amazing. And I think we all agree on that, don't we, with to be honest yeah, with you. I mean, I'm preaching to the converted here anyway. So absolutely. Yeah. sixteen um, years in the position. As Simon said, he massively increased participation. The number of clubs went up from, I think it was a, around 50 to 60 to over 100. Yeah. But I think one of the most kind of important things that you can almost quantify better than anything else for the FIH kind of perspective, he increased the sponsorship funding from under a quarter of a million to over two. Yeah. So that's over 10 times the funding that he generated during his tenure can you imagine that kind of figure going to the fih if they could increase the funding that they're getting even by five times what they are currently pulling in and increase participation in a similar way to that worldwide 
It's honestly, like I said, we, I think we can, we're all converted to the preacher. Uh, to, to, to the sorry, the preachers. We're all converted to preachers. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> it's late. It's late. Okay. So yeah, we all, we're all in agreement. He's 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 probably the best man for the job, but unfortunately, he wasn't given that opportunity. But next time round, we'll make a campaign before it happens, boys. In about four years' time, three and a half. We'll start from three and a half, so that when. You know, six months before it actually happens, we've got some sort of backing behind us. Um, okay, anyway. It's <laughs> an overestimation on how long Batter is going to stay in the position there. <laughs> well, Controversial well, if, opinion. If, <laughs> if, uh, if, if the court case in uh, uh, India goes the way people think it should be going, then I don't think it's going to be in the position for very long anyway, but who knows. Anyway, right. Um, last topic on our uh, discussion list is uh, an old England um, England club disbanding after over 100 years, and that was uh, Clacton um, Hockey Club, who'd been so like uh, in existence for over 100 years, and unfortunately have had to had to uh, disband because I believe it's down to loss of uh, playing facilities. Um, if I'm remembering, there was some discussion with uh, a local rival club about a pitch share that fell through and left them without any option of where to go oh wow so there's no there's no playing facilities or or anything like that around their area no available playing facilities oh okay well that's that's a massive shame isn't it i wonder if like i don't know i wonder if they've even spoke to england hockey to get some sort of help out of that because i'm just reading reading a bit of the thing now right 113 years 113 years that's that's a hell of a long time for a club to be around and then not even exist yeah absolutely i mean i think it's the way hockey's been going unfortunately Mm. as we lose facilities then the clubs with this history are either disappearing or merging into other clubs yeah i mean it's, it's a shame because i mean a lot of the facilities are changing from you know all weather pitches to 3G pitches. There's a lot happening, even in in, in this area here in, in Greater Manchester and and even in Lancashire as a whole. Uh, facilities opting to go with um, 3G pitches. Um, now I don't understand why they they would do that. I, I appreciate that football is very popular out there, and you know it brings in the cash and things like that. But you can play football on an all weather pitch. But the FA gives some funding to help reduce yeah. the cost of implementation. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's unfortunately we don't have that buying power or anything like that. Uh, and if we did, maybe we could do something about it. Uh, but it's a shame that all these all these astroturfs are converting to 3G pitches. And I, I thought I thought there was some sort of partnership between uh, the FA England hockey and also England rugby with regards to facilities and stuff. Now that why is that partnership not being Sort of like, you know, you know, why they're not interacting with each other and saying, you know, if you're going to do this, then this is going to affect our sport. Don't understand. I think it very simply comes down to administration. Like the FA will probably not know that by replacing this one specific pitch, a club that's been running for 113 years is going to have to disband. Yeah. And yeah. the likelihood is that all of the funding and planning and everything has already gone through by the point that they are made aware of it. Yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. And I think, you know, 
these organisations should talk to each other because if they've got some sort of partnership going on, they should be talking to each other about this and saying, right, okay, what, what clubs are, what other clubs do you have? Like, you know, let's say rugby or even uh, or even hockey, the FA should be talking to the to England Hockey and saying, what clubs do you have out there? Because if we've got an application for, you know, a, a new 3G pitch wanting to go down there, how many all-weather pitches are around that area? Um, can clubs use that? Can we help and, or, or whatever? But I suppose they're looking out for their own sport, aren't they? Anyway, at the end of the day, so don't know whether they're going to be doing that sort of that sort yeah. of stuff proactive. I, I think it's very much a case of they're not going to be proactive in protecting hockey. I think yeah, yeah. if England hockey get in touch with them and say, look, uh, we know that this pitch is coming up for renewal. They're looking at going to 3G. It's the home base of a club. Can we work? on some kind of arrangement to make sure that it's still a hockey playing surface. Yeah. They would quite happily work with them and, and get it all sorted. But I think going to them at the 11th hour and being like, look, we're going to lose this playing for, for a hockey club. Yeah. It's too late at that point. It has to be very kind of early in the process for them to be able to get wheels in motion and offer that support. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I just hope they can actually work together in the future because this is this is really sad. Uh, when I when I heard about it or read about it, when you guys you know put it to my attention, I was like read a bit of it and thought it's 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 we're losing a bit of history here in this country. We're losing a club that's been around for 113 years and probably won't be around because they're having to disband because they've got no facilities. I I I wonder if anyone does actually read this like a, a you know a, a sports facility that has got a playing uh, facility that will allow hockey to take uh, take place on it can turn around to them and say okay look you know you might not have to disband because we might be able to work something out here for you but maybe they've actually been through all this and and the facilities have said though i'm sorry we can't help we've had a lot of issues with like uh you know playing facilities in 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 greater manchester as well and even in lancashire as a whole i, I don't know what it's like in yorkshire um fraser where clubs that don't have their own you know astroturf or clubhouse or whatever has found it very, very difficult to find a playing facility to play on or even train on, even when there's facilities out there at, at schools and, and, and you know, other uh, sports centres or whatever. They either, the schools won't allow them to play because of the COVID, you know, pandemic or whatever, and they want to keep the, the AstroTurf for school use only for, for now. Um, but, I mean, there's, there's got to be some solutions out there for clubs to actually engage with schools that have got facilities that can accommodate them kind of so i mean this situation happened to my club about 10 years ago where we lost our home pitch okay we landed luckily enough that there was a, a school within kind of the the local area let's yeah. say it wasn't actually in the same town so we right. actually had to go and play uh, as part of a, a neighboring city right um but yeah that was a case of we looked into options that we had available and that was the only thing we could do it has more recently happened to another club local to us that they've lost their playing facility uh, they were actually in a strange situation in that they were working between two schools because they could play matches at one school but not train yeah and they could train at one school but not play matches right. because of uh one of the schools didn't have floodlights okay because it was a residential area they never got planning permission for it yeah. So they couldn't train in the evening there. Um, and it, originally there was another school close by where they could, but both of those pitches have now been replaced with 3G pitches. Oh, wow. Okay. And they have again had to go somewhere completely separate. So for a short amount of time, they were actually training at our 
new pitch right because there was some free time on one of the nights but they are now i believe training and playing uh again having to go kind of one town over to be able to find a playing surface yeah. that they can use for hockey there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of clubs out there in similar very similar situation you know with regards to replacement of um you know or weather services to 3G uh, pitches and stuff, and uh, and also schools not allowing them to play. Uh, I'm pretty sure, you know, there's not just a couple of clubs that I know that are in this situation right now, where they can't find uh, a playing facility close by and they have to go one town over. And also maybe even uh, playing at the same facility as another club, but obviously not encroaching on their training night or whatever. Uh, and then they've got the added problem of finding a pitch to play on a weekend it's it's i don't know what can what's what sort of solution we can get i mean whether england hockey can step in and try and help these clubs to get their own pitches somehow i don't know i mean not sports are doing a, a good job of trying to engage with like clubs that don't have uh, facilities at the moment um and and trying to see whether they can actually get more facilities for clubs for their own use and whatever even if it's at a school or something like that but you know they're doing a good job on on that but i think that not more funding needs to be out there for clubs to do that this pandemic has actually um highlighted this problem of of lack of facilities for certain clubs and i hope england hockey are taking note fingers crossed and uh okay so i think um that's it for our uh, talking points uh fraser do we have uh anything else that we uh we, we got to talk about nothing else from me okay cool so uh, simon oh, i can't see your hand going up there mate. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I just had one thing. It was just to congratulate uh, the Reverse Stick, who will be releasing their 200th episode uh, this coming week. Oh yeah, of course, and then, and they've got this uh, podcast award thing as well. You know, we're going to win that one. Are we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're very for good. the benefit of the audio listeners. Tad is once again throwing money around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, they're very. I think you know. They're to me. They're they're fantastic. Yeah. Great knowledge, really engaging, uh, yeah. not afraid to say something that's a bit controversial. Yeah. Uh, they back it up with plenty of experience. And uh, yeah, I frequently listen to them when I'm either driving to hockey or going out for a bike ride. Um, yeah. So very grateful for work they do. Yeah, absolutely. They do a good job. But the thing is, you know, with this uh, podcast award thing, they're, they're not putting themselves forward or, or allowing themselves to be to be picked for this, which... I'm thinking, wow, you know, that's, it. And, I'm, and I'm pretty sure that some people have or would have basically filled the format and said the reverse stick, but because, but because you're not putting yourself forward, maybe this one instead. But I reckon you should put yourself forward for it. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, um, if it was me and I was doing something like that, I'd be, I'd be going, it's you guys, but because you're not allowing yourself to be picked, I think we're going to go with this one instead. Uh, but there's a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of new podcasts out there as well. So I think good luck to everyone, I think, to be fair. I don't know if anyone, you know, nominated us or anything like that. I think I put in about 100 requests or something like that. I don't know. No, I didn't really. I'm joking. Um, but yeah, Taff at the uh, hockey family, Taff at the hockey family one, <laughs> Taff at the hockey family yeah. two. Yeah, <laughs> how did you know? How did you know? Um, no, 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 I've not done that. Anymore. Okay, so before we go on to the unfounded stage, let's listen to the discussion we had with Keely Dunn from FH Umpires. Hope you enjoy it. Well, hello, uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Keely. It's uh, a pleasure having you here. It's been a long time. It's been a it has. Time. Thank you so much for the invite. I really appreciate it. It's it's quite the honor. <laughs> no, the honor's all ours, uh, I am sure. So 
basically we've got a couple of questions for you on 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 rules and and things like that so i know you you're very stuck for time because you're a very popular woman so let's get <laughs> on with it and and see what sort of um what sort of you know insights you've got on these so the questions we've got about rule changes and uh, and things like that um so we'll go through the first one and then you can <laughs> you can sort of like give us your opinion on it sure uh, so pc defense cannot start in the goals what do you think of that kind of that rule being changed from you know at the moment as, as you know and i don't have to tell you <laughs> that the players start inside the goal mouth and then obviously run out not allowing them to do that so maybe the indoor rule kind of thing where they start outside the, uh, outside the goal your thoughts yeah yeah it's it's an interesting idea and i i've heard people like simon mason um advocating for it on commentary duties and and things like that. And the intention, I think, of anything that we change with the penalty corner rules really needs to be focused on the danger of it. So it's not just for, it's not fiddling for fiddling's sake. It's trying to find a way to make this potentially quite dangerous play that we've miraculously done a pretty good job at keeping players safe in, making it safer. So that has to be our biggest priority. So my concern with that would be, are we... Make, are we uh, allowing defenders to be safer in their running paths if we put them outside the goal? So if they have to be the outside on the far side of the goal, are, does that help keep them out of line of the ball? Or is it going to be like indoor where actually the players are just going to take a sharper line across the line of the goal and mm -hmm. end up putting themselves... Mm -hmm in more dangerous positions because they're not as close to the ball, right? Because we all know that the best place to be is to be super close to the ball when it gets released. Yeah. It's got the least amount of, you know, uh, momentum going yeah. on it. So so I, I would like to see it working. And I think one of the problems that we really have with a lot of rural ideas and changes is that we don't test them out. Yeah. And we really need to test them out in competitive situations. And, you know, we hear rumors about, oh, down in Australia, they ran this sort of system and they did this thing. And it's it all sounds really great. But that process, any rule tests need to be really opaque, very visible for opaque, transparent. Sorry. Other way. They need to be very transparent and very visible to the entire hockey community so everybody can see what the results were instead of it just being sort of rumors and hearsay and things done in secret. So let's be super open about it. Let's put footage out on the internet about experimenting with these rules and with a change like starting the players outside the goal and seeing what it really does. And it's the players who are going to tell us, yeah. does this work or not? And the only way we can get feedback from players is to get them to play it. So... Cool. Well, well, that's, that sounds sounds fair. That um, you know, um, and I, and I get your point with regards to um, with regards to putting the players actually putting themselves in into more danger as because uh, they're running across the line of the ball poss ball path possibly. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree with Keely Simon? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Come I, on, I, I need controversy. Oh, but Fraser's here. It's okay. We got him for controversy. Your thoughts on that, Fraser? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a good point that 
it's something that would be interesting to try and see whether people end up in more dangerous positions. I think taking people outside of the line of the direct shot would possibly empower the the shot more, but would also mean people aren't running the direct line of the shot, which takes out the option to run the what is often called the suicide line, which just puts players in harm's way. I mean, I remember watching a game, I believe it was the Dutch were attacking and they had a string of about eight short corners in the row where the first runner got hit below the knee repeatedly and it was before knee pads became as prevalent as they are now and at one point he was almost carried back to the goal and I just thought why are you running that line again but if that's what you feel at the top level if that's what they feel is the most secure defence to close off half of the goal they're going to do that and if you take that option away from them it might mean that with the level of protection that they have currently, they they wouldn't be in that position to get as injured as they are. Yeah, I, I, I don't see the line changing the way the players approach the problem, though, right? They're just going to keep doing the same thing, but maybe not get themselves as securely in that line. So I think they might be at, at, a, at a bigger risk because they're not... You know, they're kind of coming across it and then because we're okay with them running that line as long as they're trying to use their stick to stop the ball. So if their stick is in front of their body and they're running the line with their body, like that's okay because they are trying to use their stick. They're just sometimes failing. It's when they have their stick over here and then their body's coming at the ball and they're not even trying to use their stick. That's the suicide run. And we don't see that very much anymore. Hardly at all. So I think... At the end of the day, what we have are a, a situation where the, the def- defending units have gotten better at anticipating those lines, getting their sticks in front of their bodies. There are a lot of legitimately blocked shots coming through these days. And penalty corner attacks just have to be better. And right now they're not because so many players have been developing their drag flicks for the last several years. And it, like, let's face it, it's a great shot that has zero deception value based in it so the drag flicker is just going to go straight in that line that's just what they do and they're not adjusting yet so there's always this oscillation this tension between you know what the what the attack does and then the defense comes to meet and then the attack is forced to do something different and that's going to change all of the safety and danger parameters i think so i think another consideration is that once you have defenders coming in from different angles you have also have the attackers coming in from different angles looking to run deflections at the minute with them all in the goal it's fairly predictable the sorts of patterns people are going to run so umpires know where to look players know what sort of risk they're assuming as soon as you have opposite angle running they're just going to smash into each other and get concussions yeah you can edit that back in the start where i just said yes That's fine. So, at the minute, especially in the Euros, what happened quite a few times was that the drag flicker at top D used the defensive screen almost as a shield to block the goalkeeper's vision. Mm-hmm. I think putting players in the position to be that screen is going to increase the risk to them. If you are shooting through a player so that the goalkeeper is unsighted, that means you are more likely to attack down the 
kind of runner side, which is usually the goalkeeper's left. Is that not going to increase danger if we instead move them outside of the goal? The runner is going to start outside of the goal and is going to still run the keeper's left, but they're going to be coming across at a diagonal. They're going to have their stick out to block and their body would possibly then not be in the line of the goal. No, because they, they still want to get to that spot. So they're going to get to that spot by running a sharper angle, and then they're going to be further away from the ball. Would they not Because they're, they're, they're going to know that's not optimal, right? So because they, they've learned that this is the best way to defend a drag flick mm. is to have their stick in front of their body and run that line. So yes, they're using a screen, but they're not they're not putting it through the player. They're putting it beside the player, and then the presence of that defender's body makes it harder for the goalkeeper to pick up the ball because he can't see it until, you know, a couple half seconds after it's been released. But they're not putting it through them anymore. They're trying to put it off to the side. So, I I just I. I, I don't see that as necessarily like it's just not hitting me as a as a favorable behavior modification because the lesson has been learned. But what needs to change now is seeing the penalty corner conversion rates fall the way that we have over the last few years. Now we have to see some changes by the top teams to move away from the straight drag flick strategy because it's just not as good as it used to be. And that's me having zero coaching data on the topic, but I hear rumors. So, okay. So, Keely, well, thanks for that. Um, quite interesting, and I, and I kind of like I kind of like agree and kind of like thinking maybe like you were saying we need to see it in action. Um, and hopefully, you know, maybe if somebody's listening to this from like a, a governing body, they could introduce it and we can see how it goes. Um, so the next question for you, or or the next rule, kind of wonderment would be like the self-pass um taking free hits um what to say the taker must not run up any defender within five meters but any defender with five meters your thoughts on that okay so this this is a another really interesting issue in that what we're seeing is the propensity for p- defenders who have been caught within the five meters are not interfering with the play necessarily, but they are running away from the self, the taken self pass, but they're running away in what is the most attractive line towards the goal. Yeah. Right. And I've, I've heard it on other podcasts when coaches have been interviewed and things like that, Well, they'll say they're allowed to run straight backwards towards the goal, as long as they're trying to get there. And what I would say is I'm not sure if we really need a rule change for this, but we just need better education as to what the correct interpretation is. Because if you are a defender who is who is taking away the most attractive line and occupying that space, you are by definition interfering with the play. And that is one of the conditions that you can't fulfill as you are trapped within that five meters. So you can't attempt to attack, but you can't interfere with the play. So I think if we just had better awareness of that and we had learned that that is something that we need to penalize, we don't necessarily need defenders to stand stock still. I'd be a little concerned about 
I mean, that's a really tough thing to ask players to do, I would guess. As a player, you're all players, you're all coaches. You, you must imagine how what a difficult imposition is. Like, bang, you've been caught, and now all of a sudden you have to go like this, and you have to stand yeah. still. Sometimes players do it because it, it works with what they were doing. But sometimes if they just stand stock still, they are going to be blocking the most attractive space, yeah. whether that's the best pass, the straight line to the goal, you know, what have you. So I think it's a, it, I think it's a, it's a, a, a good attempt to try to codify something that I think still needs to stay a little more subjective and flexible. Let's say some flexible. I think, um, when the when the rule first came out with the self pass and obviously the uh, the the player within played distance or the defending player within playing distance had to um, you know move or make make some sort of attempt to actually get away from uh, from the self pass taker. Uh, there were players that actually, like you were saying, stood still and said, mm-hmm. "Well, I'm not inter- I'm not interfering. I'm not interfering." And to start off with, I think. Uh, umpires didn't penalize that because they would like saying okay well he's not attempting to play or she's not attempting to play the ball so that's mm-hmm. fine but like you were saying they were in line with where the actual self-pass taker wanted to go so they were interfering in a, in a sense then i saw umpires start to penalize that so if you just stood still and didn't even make an attempt to actually retreat they would get penalized so they would get a green card yellow card or whatever um it doesn't happen so much in 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 international hockey, really. But in in kind of local hockey, I, I'm I'm sure, you know, Simon and Fraser probably say something similar, or they might have seen something similar. It does happen in regional games, from what I can still see at the moment, um, where players will not will not retreat or will not even attempt to retreat. They'll just stand there and put their hands up, and they'll be in line with where the player who wants to go towards goal is is there so they obviously get penalized anyway Fraser what's your yeah what's your thought around prohibiting the self-pass taker from going straight at the defender to lead me through your thought process there because I'm really interested in that so the reason I said they can't run directly at the defender is like I've put in our notes is the player is allowed to exist on the pitch they can't cease to occupy a space but if you take the movement out of it there is no discussion of if they're trying to break down play if they move they're trying to interfere with play if they're stood completely stationary it they become essentially like the umpire they're part of the pitch don't run into them and that's on the player to be aware and it means that they can't do any kind of tactical I'm still just standing here. I'm not involved in play, but I'm also blocking the line to goal or I'm forcing you to go uh, this direction to where all of our players are currently stood. Yeah. So then my question to you would be, what if, say, it's a foot foul that's committed, the defender happens to be in a very broad stance, their stick is down, and they're taking up a very wide position. Are they entitled to stand like that? What is a stand? And how much space are they allowed to take? If they're not allowed to move, can they continue to stretch out for that four meters or three meters or however big they are and and cut off that entire angle? 
or do they need to move enough so that they become more vertical and get their stick out of the way? And then how much of that is moving and how much is standing? I would say they just need to lift their stick out of the way. Unless they are literally laying on the pitch to block off that option. If they lift their stick out of the way, then the only space they are occupying is the space where their feet is on the ground. And if you can't not run into someone's feet who's completely stationary, then you have a lot of hockey skills to practice. Mm-hmm. Okay. <coughs> Tough. <laughs> <laughs> oh. What's your thoughts yeah. on that, Simon? Uh, for me, I, I don't think it needs to be changed. I think it's uh, umpire education and knowing how to best apply uh, personal and team penalties. So you can tell if someone's making a legitimate attempt to get out of the way. Uh, if they still impede them, but it's not deliberate, you then decide, do we upgrade to a penalty corner because the team have lost out on the opportunity to have a really good attacker of a D? Or do you consider, okay, in the middle of a pitch, it's of no real consequence, just reset and take it again? Um, I think, yeah, it just comes down to the umpires knowing how to read the situation and as much as possible also using their voice before it becomes a problem. And getting the players to retreat or disengage. Um, And generally, I think, yeah, you're right. It does change depending on the level. So, like, today I was at the Oxbridge 2s, 3s and 4s varsity matches, and some of the players lower down would probably leave their stick trailing behind them with the face of the stick facing the ball. They are still really trying to channel someone. If they lift it up and they're running away with their back turned, you know they're not trying to really engage. They're, they're sprinting back, turn around and set. Um, so, yeah, I think it just comes down to umpires understanding the intent and then applying appropriate penalties. I mean, sometimes the, I mean, I find that sometimes the self-pass taker, you it intentionally goes at the player that's trying to retreat and, and, and kind of like goading him into into making some sort of an attempt at the ball within that five meter so that they get penalised and then either get a card or whatever. Uh, yeah, so let's freak. say, for example, I fouled you. Um, I'm on the side. It's at the sideline. You've yeah. got a straight line at goal, un- unimpeded, and then instead you go chasing me to try and get me binned off. Yeah. As the umpire, I would basically start, tell you to stop playing silly buggers and <laughs> say, take it again or, or just give a free hit back to the other team for, for unsportsmanlike conduct or whatever, that yeah. sort of umbrella uh oh no I, I totally get that yeah i totally get that i, mean, I, I have seen that happen a few times when i've been umpiring and people have tried to bin people off by chasing them when there's no logical reason they would want to do it other than to get the person sacked off yeah, yeah. So remember 12.1 always exists a foul has to actually disadvantage the opposition so if the if by you know going off to the side and <laughs> the self-pass taker goes straight at that person they are not being disadvantaged by the opposition they're being disadvantaged by themselves so you have there's no reason for you to intervene you can just nope play continues nothing there keep going so yeah it it only takes one of those to not get called before that doesn't happen again because they're like oh yeah actually i should have taken that straight line (laughs) maybe i could have had a shot on goal that's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Wealth, yeah. So in okay. that, you mentioned, Simon, that one of the things you would possibly do is get them to retake if there was someone interfering with play. 
whether deliberately or dubiously, let's say, isn't a retake basically stripping them of the advantage of the self-pass that's, in a quick continuation? You, that's when you take into consideration if there's any further penalties to apply, for example, a green or a yellow card or upgrading it to a penalty corner. So it, it, it all depends on circumstances as to what, what a reward would involve. Yeah, and and I understand what Fraser's getting at. I am not a fan of re- restarting a play, rewarding existing penalties for anything for exactly the reason that Fraser's talked about, because hockey is not a game of territory. It's a game of space and time. And as soon as you take that away by repeating something, you are taking, you, you are giving space and time to the team who has been able to manufacture that restart mm. essentially so yeah i i totally what you, what i totally get what you're getting at fraser but i think i think simon's got you know the, the right of it in the sense that it really is an education issue and when taff says to me i, I always listen for those keywords you don't see it happening at international level and it's like mm. yeah that's probably because it gets called more accurately there and so the correct application of the rule as it sits, as it's worded and as it's supposed to be interpreted gets the right of behavior. Well, the problem is in education. It's not in the rule. And we just yeah. have to be better and we just have to figure out better ways to get the messages across. So can I ask you for some clarity on something? Which sure. Which did happen at international level. Yes. So a self-pass was taken I believe it was around the 23, but not in. Uh, okay. The player took it, mm-hmm. ran towards top D. Mm-hmm. The player who committed the foul ran alongside him, not engaging in any challenge, probably about half a yard to his right, which was goal side. Would you see that as interfering with play? Because he is basically cutting off half of the pitch just by being stood next to him. If he tries to change direction and go across pitch, he's going to run into the defender. So that option is then taken away from him. So he's not actually involved, but he is limiting the player on the ball's options. Yeah, potentially. And this is th- this is why when we sit and we talk about rules and we start describing situations, it's so difficult because your words probably painted a very p- clear picture in your head And then as I take those words and put them into my brain, I probably have a very different picture of that whole thing. And it's very subtle things like the angles and where on the pitch is this happening? How fast are the players moving? Is it a little bit behind, a little bit in front? All of these things, tiny, tiny little aspects can change entirely the way that we perceive these decisions and what should be properly awarded. So I I, I would... I, I can only give you the equivocal answer and say, well, maybe, sure, it's possible. <laughs> that could have been interference. It could have also not been interference. And one of the reasons why we don't try to nail things down into black and white and, and get more words into the rule book to describe these scenarios is that the more words we put in there, the more exceptions there are going to be. And there will be more factors that we haven't even considered. And then a rule book is going to be you know, 300 pages long and it's going to look like, you know, the NFL American football rule book (laughs) instead of what ours does. And even fewer people are going to read it in that case. 
And then we're going to have to change it every year because the game's changing so quickly. I, I think it's a real asset to our game that our rule book is small, the rules are short, and they are open to... They allow us to interpret all of the different factors at once and get to the right result at that moment. But those moments are ever-changing, and we get to different ones. And within two years, the entire skill has changed, for example, and and our rules give us more ability to accommodate that. And that is why our game is nimble and fun and cool and the best in the world. I agree with that. Totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah, agree with it totally. And on that bombshell, we'll go on to the next one. <laughs> um, so the next kind of like rule change or, you know, uh, talking point is um, players that are allowed within five metres of an overhead pass, but not allowed to actually engage. At the moment, obviously, you know, our listeners will know that you have to be five metres from an overhead pass to come into a player, or can you, you, you're going like, I'm screwing your face a little bit, uh, but, you know. <laughs> um, but that rule there, or the, the, the talk, talking point there, what what's your um, sort of like take on that? Yeah, th this is excellent because this really does play into where the aerial interpretation is going. Yeah. And um, Rob Tenkat and I are offering a aerials workshop, which might have already occurred by the time this episode airs. I'm not sure what your airing schedule is, but we are going to be talking about these things, like what is an initial receiver and this, there's this notion that an initial receiver has to be within, they have to be in five meters clear space in order to be that initial receiver. Otherwise it's dangerous, regardless of where the other players are. And that just doesn't work these days. It just isn't true. We've gotten to the point now that aerials are being thrown at such different trajectories, really high balls that come down really steep. And then balls that are thrown on the move that are a lot you know, that are coming in fast and hot, but they're low. And so an initial receiver could be in front, as it were. There's a defender behind, but they are absolutely not influencing the play whatsoever. So this this idea that is is put forward in this suggestion that that um, as long as that player within five meters doesn't interfere with the controlling of the ball, that both accommodates that view that an initial receiver doesn't have to be totally alone in five meters of space drawn out on the pitch in a circle around them, which was never, I don't think, I don't think that was ever supposed to be the thing, but that's just the way that we visualized it as umpires. And then we taught it to the next generations and it's just absolutely completely wrong. And it also incorporates the idea of disadvantage where, where is there actually an impact on the play and actual disadvantage? So I do like this. I don't know if it needs to be codified and necessarily because again, I'm not a fan of codifying lots of things, but I think that it, it's it's getting to that idea of where we're coming to now, which is safety is possible without actually stopping a player from being within five meters, as long as they're not a jerk face. <laughs> so yeah, there you I go. Mean, when I when I've umpired, um, and I don't obviously umpire at a very high level. <laughs> um, we have obviously had players that are, um, you know, within five meters, kind of, uh, when an overhead uh, ball is coming down. 
And what I generally do is what you're what you're suggesting and what this kind of is suggesting as well is that I allow the receiver to actually control the ball. And if the person who's within five meters or maybe they're four meters away or three meters away or whatever, I allow them to be in that position. But I also allow the, the receiver to control the ball and do what they need to do before I think that the other player who's within that uh, area or, or within that five meters approaches them and starts engaging, really. Um, if I think, you know, it's safe enough and they haven't impeded or they've they've not caused any danger because that player hasn't actually received or control the ball before they engage, I'll let play carry on, you know, that sort of thing. And I yeah, think that's probably... If- yeah, if, if you're watching the top-level hockey, this is what you're seeing. Yes. You're seeing this interpretation being applied because the players at that level don't need five meters of clear space in order to do their magic. Yeah. They can receive that ball. They're not even bringing it down onto the ground. They're able to do an evasive move, and actually they want that player closer to them because it makes it easier for them to eliminate them. Yeah. If they're five meters away, there's, oh, like now I have this whole – you know, coming into contact and addressing thing. I'd actually rather have them close and pinned and be able to receive and poke it off to the side and, psh, and off they go. So yeah. so it's understanding what the players need skill-wise at that level in order to perform to the best of their ability. Yeah. And that's that's what we're doing with every single call we make as umpires is make making that calculation. This player needs this space, this time, uh, in order to execute a skill and we shift the scales accordingly if that makes any sense yeah yeah lots boys i mean for me i i'll generally if if they're not interfering and they're less than five meters away i'll let it go if it's safe and if it's not i'll try and blow it before it becomes dangerous yeah. i think changing it could become harder the lower down you go uh it's fine if you're out of Andorran and uh, <laughs> you, you you can pick up an aerial and, and blaze past someone. It's a different thing if you've got like one person on the pitch who is quite comfortable picking and taking them down and others who have no idea if it's more than six inches off the floor what to do. Um, so, so doesn't a sliding scale help more in that situation as an umpire? Because we're not saying that you can't give them five meters of space we're saying to give them whatever space they need to control the aerial so at a lower level you might not allow players to be six meters away because you know that people can't control an aerial whereas if you go higher up you might say oh they only needed two meters of space or that player is three meters away but they're to the left and the players controlled it to the right they're not in any danger yeah I think the evolution of the the aerial rule, the reason it got put into place was they saw that these intentionally raised passes, these these flicks or scoops across the pitch, were really cool. And we wanted to see more of them. And in order to see more of them, we needed to make sure that the skill could evolve in a safe way. And everybody learning all of these dynamics, the way that we've all learned as hockey people through culture and community we've learned what's safe and what's not safe when we're playing penalty corners we've learned over the last 20 years what is better what is safe and what is unsafe with aerials and even though the word danger doesn't appear anywhere in the aerial rule and rob tenkat and i argue about this all the time 
<laughs> I believe the rule is about danger, but it's a codification of what we thought was dangerous back in 2003. It's not 2003 anymore. <laughs> We've moved on. The game has completely changed. There's all kinds of different other rules that have changed that have altered the way that aerials are executed on the pitch. Therefore, we can we can interpret them differently. And if we need to change the wording of the rule because people are going to get all stickler, like it says five meters, fine. Okay. <laughs> we can figure out a way to accommodate that, but we should, I think in our game, understand that flexibility and be able to apply that because we have 12.1 basically. Yeah. And the danger rule. Is that, does that is that okay for you, Fraser? <laughs> yeah, um, it's Fraser, my, you have all my such, suggestions. <laughs> you have just the best poker face because I have no idea if you are completely jiving with what I'm saying or you're thinking I'm full of BS. Do you see the problem that we have then, Keely? <laughs> oh, I can only imagine week after week. What a challenge. Well, Keely, um, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I know we, we didn't get to cover as much as we thought we might want to, uh, but maybe we can have you back on again and, and talk about more real suggestions and things. Uh, but honestly, it's been a pleasure. It's great seeing you again and, and talking to you live <laughs> like this. <laughs> Not texting each other on WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. fantastic. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And I, I would love to come back. Um, what I think is really important is to continue these kind of dialogues and you're going to get feedback on this from your listeners. Everybody, you make sure you text these guys and you let them know what you thought of everything we <laughs> talked about. And and you as the listeners will have more ideas of things that we should talk about and explore. And we can do that next time. So, yeah, let's let's do that. Leave the listeners wanting more and having more yeah. inquiries. I so love it. Part, part two coming soon then. You bet. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Keely. Uh, honestly, it's been a pleasure and uh, I look forward to having you back on again. Thanks, Taff. Thanks, Simon and Fraser. Thank you, Keely. Yeah, thanks for joining us. First one by me is our previous podcast, obviously. Um, the, the first one being the most recent one being the Euro Championship special, which um, came out and you two did that uh, without myself. You know, I, d I didn't get invited to that. Thanks, Fraser. Um, I think you're just getting, getting me back for the uh, other special that we did, isn't it, really? Uh, <laughs> um, where you obviously talk about um, the tournament. Uh, you also talk about what kits you liked, which I thought was quite interesting. It was really good. Uh, and obviously a lot more. Um, so if you're out there and you listen to the podcast, podcast listen to our previous one on the Euro Hockey, um, see what you think and, you know, send us a message. I'm open to emails coming to me, social media, you know, comments or, or even you know dms so just send it over uh we also had the uh, brand pitch one y1 hockey and now it wasn't exclusive at the time <laughs> uh we got to find out about their uh, latest range um before they actually released their latest range so it wasn't exclusive but it's obviously not now because they've already released it um so just check it out i mean you might get to um see how the the new range was developed and 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 uh, a bit more about Y1. Um, yeah, so got, I, I mean, sorry, go I'll jump in on that. So yeah, yeah, in the brand pitch episode, we not only talk about the new range of stuff, but we also talk a bit about the brand and yeah, the yeah. decision making that goes on. So 
I always try and ask because I know our listeners will be keen to find out how to get sponsored. <laughs> what sort of thing brands want to see? And I personally think that's some of the most interesting stuff that they talk about. Sure. I, I, mean, I mean, even Jamie Dwyer spoke about that, didn't he, in, in one of the podcasts that we did as well. So, um, you know, if you're thinking about getting sponsored by some of these um, brands that we're actually doing or or Fraser's doing, um, and how to get sponsored by them, listen out to those podcasts and you can find out what they're looking for. Uh, we also had the Oxbridge Varsity um podcast as well which was um done by uh, simon uh that was about a good few weeks ago anyway but you know si can will probably tell us a bit more about that uh yeah yeah it was so the varsity for the blues team which was about a month ago now so yeah no it was interesting just to hear a bit of the history of it a bit about how they'd been preparing for it we now know the outcome because they've played the match um <laughs> yeah so uh it was perhaps a bit closer than JP expected for Cambridge and Oxford in the men's. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it was a it was a good good to hear a bit more. So obviously, yeah. where I am, I see a lot of Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, indeed, today saw a lot of Oxford as well at the uh, the twos, threes, fours, varsity. But for those who don't know much about Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge varsity, this was hopefully quite interesting. Yeah, it was quite interesting. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I listened to it all, and um, it's, it's good insight on what they they prepare and 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 the and the and the banter that they go through with with both Ox, Oxford and, and Cambridge as well. So that's quite interesting. Uh, we also obviously have like uh, our interview series, which um, Simon has done as well again, and there's some very interesting interviews out there. Simon can talk about a couple of them, maybe. Uh, yeah. So. Um... Spoke with Ashley De Hoog, uh before the Euros. Obviously, she didn't unfortunately make the cut for the team on that occasion. Um, but her journey of training through her pregnancy for as long as she could, and then getting back into the national team set up, I think something like six weeks after giving birth, um, and representing the country again in Pro League. Uh, it's just very interesting to hear about her background and about how she went about doing that sort of thing. Um, so that would be the highlight for me. Cool. And what what was interesting is well I think this is true. I, correct me if I'm wrong here. That her family, none of her family ever played hockey, and and she's the only one out of her out of her family that's actually played hockey. Uh, and look at where she's got to. It's amazing. Really good. Fraser, I'm gonna let you go into your soapbox now. Go for it. You know you want to. Yeah, I have a Patreon. If people want to support, patreon.com forward slash hockey. Uh, you can spot for £1 or £2 a month, gets you some early access, some discount and some exclusive content. Cool. Got, we've got reviews on there now as well, haven't you, at the moment? Yeah, there's some reviews going on. Uh, they'll be going out very shortly. Some might even beat this podcast to uh, being released. Who knows? <laughs> uh, giveaways? Have you got any giveaways coming out uh, uh, out soon or planned? I've not got any planned at the minute. Okay. Well, but you do usually have them regularly anyway, so so watch that space anyway. So we've got a bit of a funding drive as well at uh, Talk Hockey Radio through our the Hockey Family website. Um, we've got uh, donations um, button on the right-hand side uh, on the main page where you can donate however much you want if you uh, like what we do uh, at Talk Hockey Radio or even what we do at uh, the Hockey Family. You can also purchase uh, stuff from our website uh, we're always adding new stock, uh, stuff to it on a monthly basis. It's not uh, as extensive as other websites, but, you know, it's getting there. Hopefully, fingers crossed soon. Uh, we also have a bit of an offer going on at the moment, which is uh, training balls. So if you're looking for training balls, check out the website. 
if you do uh, a bulk buy or whatever, we'll give you a discount on bulk buys. All you have to do is email us and say you want X amount of hockey balls, and we will basically email you back saying, great, no problem. Here's discount code. Uh, put in your request for however many balls you want. There you go. Uh, we've got three different varieties of balls, so uh, just check them out. And that's about it, isn't it, really? Has anyone got any uh, any other stuff that we need to talk about? Oh, no? Okay, cool. On that note, thank you very much, uh, Simon and Fraser, for again joining me and keeping, uh, you know, entertaining me kind of thing uh, on this podcast. Uh, it's always a pleasure having you. Cheers, Taff. Thanks for having us, Taff. Cheers. Thank you. Bye, everyone.